Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Atege Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. I'm so excited to bring you this special out-of-season bonus episode with the incomparable Paris Lees, whose incredible memoir and debut book, What It Feels Like for a Girl, is published this week. Born and raised in Hucknall, near Nottingham, Paris is a super talented journalist whose work I've been a fan of for a really long time. She's written for publications including The Guardian, The Independent, The Telegraph and Vice, and she's currently a columnist for British Vogue. She's also presented programmes for BBC Radio 1 and Channel 4 and regularly appears as a guest on Question Time, as well as having been a prominent campaigner for the transgender community. I absolutely loved Paris's book. It's an absolute whirlwind of a read, completely raw and heartbreaking and yet scorchingly funny at the same time. Paris is a brilliant writer and I found reading her account of what is a pretty extraordinary life story completely transformative and I'm sure you will too. We covered so much ground in this interview. Everything from how Paris feels about being labelled as an activist to her tumultuous teenage years and her time as a sex worker as well as topics such as class and code switching and how acquiring privilege and money can make your life far easier if you're from a marginalised background. On a personal level, I also found speaking to Paris really eye-opening, particularly on the topic of how vulnerable trans children and teenagers often are and what it feels like to have your identity so heavily debated and to constantly have to explain and justify your very existence. Before we dive into my conversation with Paris, though, I wanted to share an extract from her audiobook with you, which Paris also narrates herself, just to give you a little taste of what you can expect from the book. Here it is. When we come out, I went to the edge of the castle and looked down the cliff edge. Not very good at working out heights, but let's just say we're a long way down. They built these posh houses into the cliffs, but they just look like doll's houses from up there. A bit further along, there's a cave that Uncle Roger used to live in during one of his episodes. I climbed onto the wall and stood up. Max tried to grab me, but I told him to let go or I'd jump. Said I'd be all right if he just left me alone. I was terrified, but it felt great. I don't know what it is about heights. I'm scared of them. Dead scared. But I'm not scared of falling. I'm scared of jumping. Because whenever I'm high up, I get this overwhelming urge to just leap off. I'm not suicidal. I don't want to die or out. It's just knowing that you can. How easy it'd be to do it. And how something so simple, so instant, can have the power to change your life forever. And sitting on the edge of Liam's bed, looking at that gun... I feel exactly the same way as I did on the edge of that cliff. All right then, Liam, I go. Let's do it. So, you've written a memoir. Tell me about it. Well, it's a crazy sort of warts and all account of growing up desperately unhappy in Nottinghamshire in the noughties and just desperately wanting to escape, really. I was... Very, 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 very unhappy as a child. And it led to a lot of problems. I think this book has been a long time coming. It was commissioned like seven years ago. Really? Um, Yeah. So I've had like two mental health breakdowns whilst I've been writing it, which sounds really dramatic, but like I did, you know? And it's there's this great saying that a writer gets to live life twice, which is great but there are some things you don't want to live twice but clearly what I've realized writing it is I clearly have this deep profound psychological need to process this stuff and make sense of it so I just had to write this book basically and I wanted it to be a really good read as well that was a really really key thing for me that I wanted the reader to enjoy it and I kind of got this book deal with Penguin and I was like well, I could make it more of a polemic, you know, and I could make it, we could go down this route or it could be more this. And I thought, do you know what? Just do what you want to do. And you mm. love reading fiction. You love voice-led pieces. You love things that are a bit 
bawdy and entertaining and it's like so much of the stuff that I get asked to do or take it or have done up until this point it's just so stuffy and I think I did like question time in 2013 and so then after that you get asked on to all of these sort of like news nights and, mm-hmm. and things like that to argue with like these old men and it's like it's not really what I want to do I'm quite a fun-loving person and I was like let's just make it fun you know there's a lot of really heavy stuff in there so just entertain people make it funny and I hope that there's a bit of lightness in there along with all the trauma that we're revisiting it's a really entertaining read which actually I'm glad that you've said that you sort of intended it to be that way to an extent because I almost felt like should I be laughing (laughs) because it's really funny in parts and obviously really moving and like quite heartbreaking but I mean I love reading it I just ripped through it like I had a friend recommend it to me when they got a proof of it a while back and they literally left me a voice note a three minute long voice note being like have you read Paris Lisa's book and I was like no and they were like you need to fucking read it and come and report. Who was the friend? You've got to tell us. Who was, it was the friend? It was, you know, Yomi Adagoke, the journalist. Oh my she God, I love bit. her. Yeah, she sent me these little voices and she was like, yes, it's sick, Paris. And I was like listening to it on a loop because I've spent so long writing it and she was so sweet and supportive. And that was like the first time that people had got excited about it. Something that you just said about the question time stuff has actually brought me on to something I want to talk about in terms of activism. And specifically, I mean, do you define yourself as an activist? And if so, do you do so by choice? And I ask that because I've occasionally been incorrectly labelled as an activist for women's issues and race. And although the work I do often is political and I'm a very political person, I'm also very firmly not an activist. And I sometimes think that writers who have let's say, marginalised identities, in quotation marks, and who write about that, are very often pushed into that activist campaigning sphere, whether they like it or not. And I think, for my sins, I heard that you were writing a book, and and when I kind of got this proof sent to me, it actually reminded me, I was like, oh yeah, shit, Paris is a really great writer, and I know this because I've read your work, but I wonder sometimes whether you feel like maybe that's overlooked, because... There's so much discourse surrounding trans identity and you are very much in that space. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, really. Well, I'm really glad that you asked me that because I'm not an activist in 2021. I may have been a campaigner at one point and may have described myself in those terms. And again, for me, that's something very specific because I think everybody and their dog became a campaigner at one point and that's great but it's like well what are your actual campaigns what do you do you can't just call yourself an activist well I mean you can but it's like what do you actually do and I just feel that that label's really cheap if you're saying I think that trans people should be treated with more respect then people say you're an activist Mm. and it just really annoys me because if I'm an activist well Piers Morgan's an activist (laughs) You know, and Andrew Neil and everybody else who has an opinion on the way that they think the world should be and are trying to push it in a particular direction. Everybody's an activist. Are we not all trying to exert some sort of influence on the way we think the world should be and the way we would like to be treated? I just feel that it's a bit more like clearly delineated when you're a trans person or a person from any sort of marginalised group. It just annoys me because I just feel like I don't want to be that. Some people love it and I've got the utmost respect for people like Peter Tatchell and people who've been really at the coalface for like the past 40 years. But it's like, I wish I'd been focusing on different things, actually. And I feel like I've given 10 years of my life to just saying, can you please just be nicer to people like me? And Mm. then in the end, I'm like, I will always be pushing for a kinder world for people like me and more broadly for everybody. But I'm not just going to keep banging my head against the wall. There are different ways that you can do that. And it's like, I also want to be happy myself. That is a form of activism. Laverne Cox, as a trans woman of colour, buying a house is activism because she wasn't supposed to have that house, right? Mm. According to society, society would say she's supposed to be this, she's supposed to be that. I find that really inspiring that she's done that. So that's the route I want to go down now is I want to be successful. I want to be celebrated for my work and the things that I've got to do and say. And maybe by being a trans woman who's living her life to the full, 
that is my contribution going forwards. But no, I'm not an actor. I mean, what does that mean? An no, activist? I totally get it. And the reason I ask is that because, as I said, if you have any specific kind of marginalised identity, you then become, especially in the media and in the public sphere, you become defined solely by that. And there's always a prefix. So it's like Paris Lee's trans writer. And obviously that's not a part of your identity that you're, you know, that is a part of your identity that you're proud of. And myself being a black writer, I'm proud of that part of my identity. But there's always that qualifier. It feels sometimes quite patronising. And I was just curious as to whether that was something that you considered. And like I say, like for my own sins, it took me getting a copy of your book and me hearing that you'd written a book to remember that because I think even I'd fallen into that trap of considering you as you know a trans activist or campaigner and I was like oh shit yeah I used to skive off work and read (laughs) Paris's columns like instead of actually doing my work I would just be reading your columns at work so I just wanted to broach that I'm reading at the moment I haven't finished reading it I'm halfway through it but I'm reading Detransition Baby by Tori Peters and something that immediately it made me realise within the first couple of pages is how little thought I and many others, and possibly even trans people, how little thought I've given to issues like how do trans people become parents because so much energy is expended simply defending their right or your right to exist. And I was like, hang on, we're not even thinking about quality of life or lifestyle and where do you live and all these you know things that everyone else gets to debate over at length like should I become a mother or not should I rent or should I buy all these sorts of things because you're just expending so much energy trying to persuade people that you should even be allowed to exist like it's yeah must be exhausting yeah yeah well I listened to your podcast with Elizabeth Day and where you talk about the setbacks you'd experienced at work and you having a really tough time and it sounded horrible, really, really horrible. And you're saying, is this going to affect this thing in my life? Is this, you know, will I be able to do this? Will I be able to do that? I'm absolutely not trying to detract from the tough time that you had there, but it it kind of blew my mind because I was like, wow, that's like so far away from me thinking about those things that I've literally spent my whole life being like, is it okay for me to walk down the street? Yeah. And that's absolutely not detracting from your struggles that are 100% real no I don't think you are at all and I completely agree with what you're saying it's like almost a luxury to be at the point where those were my issues as opposed no one really or not in the same way and I and I usually tend to steer away from equating different types of like oppression because I don't think it's oppression olympics but I became very well aware of my privilege that is in that nobody is like kind of questioning my right to exist as like a cis woman like it was yeah I don't know just kind of reading your work and and reading your book and realizing the kind of really minor things that I take for granted was really eye-opening so thank you for that actually yeah and I just do want to reiterate it's not to detract from anybody else's struggles because being a person is hard right and this is something that I've learned writing this book looking back at my my mum and dad just getting out of bed some days is difficult for everybody if you're a black woman if you've got diabetes if you are depressed if you are this there are so many different things that can make just living and existing and putting food on the table and getting your kids to school is a real struggle. And sometimes you you throw your hands up in the air, like the Candy Statton song, you know, like, I can't go on. I can't cope. We all have those moments. You throw in, do I even get to be me? And I do have a huge empathy for everybody because I know what it feels like to be struggling. And what really blew my mind recently is that I live in an area of London that's really out of the way. And I love that at first because I really loved the idea of living on the outskirts and somewhere quiet that was neither here nor there and being sort of hidden, I suppose. And it's become quite gentrified recently. We've got a new complex and we have like a gym and a dentist and a pharmacy and a Sainsbury's where you can buy fresh flowers and herbs and things like that. And it's made my life so much easier And it blew my mind because I was like, why did you never think about how close you were to amenities when you moved here? It simply didn't go into my head. So what were you considering when you moved there then? Why did you move there? Well, I'd moved there because I was in a relationship at the time and my partner worked in Canary Wharf. So we were close to Canary Wharf. But 
I had an older trans friend and she said, when you transition, you just sort of assume that your life's going to be really hard. So you just Mm. take on all of this stuff. And listen, you know, having read my book, that I've often made life much harder for myself than it needed to be as well. So I have to take some of that as well. I wouldn't actually agree with that summation, actually. I mean, because that's something that you brought up, I think, in your book. And I remember reacting quite strongly against that. And I totally obviously respect your, you know, right to summarise your life as you see fit. But not to victimise you, but a lot of shitty things happened to you and you had like a really hard time. And, And when... You're writing this book, taking on the burden of responsibility for how you then reacted in response to that. I felt really heartbroken for your teenage self, actually. And I wondered whether that's something that you still carry with you now. You saying to me, I made life hard for myself. I'm like, actually, your life was really quite hard in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, it's difficult because I don't want to sort of victim blame myself and by association other people who've had similar experiences because for example I talk about having sex with predatory older men when I was underage and obviously the responsibility falls squarely on those people's shoulders who were adults and should have known better but then also I did put myself in some really dangerous situations and I robbed somebody nobody was holding a gun to my head I hope that if people are empathic and intelligent, that they will look at the context in which these things happen. And that's one of the things I wanted to explore with this. It's all very well saying, you know, oh, this person's done this bad thing. Let's lock them away and throw away the key. They're a bad egg. That's fine, but it doesn't actually do anything to address the reasons why people might make those choices. But, you know, I do have to remind myself that I was a child for a lot of what's happening in this book. But to answer your question... If you grow up being told that you are not good enough, that there is something wrong with you, that you are unlovable, unlikable, that you are a pervert, that you are broken, essentially that you are wrong, not the things that you do, but just literally just being you is wrong. Why wouldn't you be fucked up at the end of that? Why wouldn't you have lifelong self-esteem issues? Why wouldn't you constantly question yourself when you've been questioned your entire life? And just to circle it back to what you were saying about the activist thing, it's really interesting because I was asked to do an interview for a serious newspaper recently, and they were concerned about me doing it with a journalist that I'd worked with before because they wanted to make sure that they were asking me hardball questions, difficult questions. And it's just like, I'm an author, I've written a book, I'm not the former prime minister. Right, the idea that you need to be challenged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is so yeah. strange to me. The idea that you need to be somehow held accountable because there is this raging discourse around trans women. So mm. you, inherently your existence becomes political and everything mm. you do becomes political. And it's like, yeah, you're an author, you've written a fucking memoir. Like usually those, unless you're David Cameron atoning for his sins usually those interviews it doesn't matter if it's done by I guess a friendly journalist essentially half the interviews I do are done by friendly journalists FYI everyone like it's really not a big deal so but they think you've got to explain yourself that I have questions to answer that I have to justify myself Mm. to them and I think that a lot of trans people fall into this trap and I think that that's why so often we talk about identity because we feel that we have to explain and justify our identity to other people and you'll notice having read the book I don't really do that I'm just like this person I I just exist I am a fact in and of myself And and I love that about the book actually I really do thank you what was the process of writing it like like did you have diaries or notes that you referred back to and I ask this because it's written almost like it is a diary by your teenage self like it's very much in the present tense it isn't written with the benefit of hindsight or commentary from your present self which is how I've written my memoir it's very much current day Tega looking back at what happened whereas your memoir reads more like a kind of a diary from that period of your life So I'm curious as to why you chose to write it like that and what the actual process of writing it was. Well, it's a bit like how you try 10 different tops on and then you end up wearing the first one that you tried on. (laughs) Because I'd taken in this sort of like snippet of writing in Byron's voice, which is the name in the book that I've used for this period of my life. Mm. 
And I've said this in in so many interviews, but when I looked at that part of my life, it was so exponentially different from me today. Even I was like, wow, how did that person become me? And it was a head fuck, right? Because I'm just like writing for Vogue. I'm in a pen 10 advert. I'm leading a kind of, you know, very cosmopolitan London lifestyle. But Mm. in the early 2000s, I was a rent boy. And it was just so weird to me, you know, and I had a much stronger accent. I had different friends, you know, and it just almost felt like it was a different person. And I'm really inspired by books like The Colour Purple, Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha. I read When I Was in a Young Offenders Institution, Train Spotting, And I thought, yeah, I had that voice. And I just think it's a really interesting way of speaking about trauma and taking you back to that place. Because how can you not write it in the voice? You know, you don't need to hear from me today because I have a voice in 2021. Mm. I needed a voice then. I didn't have a voice then. And there are kids like that on council estates that we're not hearing from who don't have a voice now. And I just really wanted to go back and give that younger version of myself a voice because we just don't hear from them. (laughs) Honestly, it's not always the most politically correct voice and there's an immaturity there and it doesn't necessarily represent what I think about the people that are involved and the views that I held then are not necessarily what I've got now, but I wanted it to be authentic. I wanted it to feel like you were literally sitting there next to me in 2001, 2002. Maybe you're an auntie, you're a friend of the family, you're a concerned social worker, and you're just hearing this story unfold and becoming increasingly horrified at the way this young person's life is spiralling out of control. Yeah, there was a bit where, without kind of giving too much away to people who haven't read it, but there was a bit where I just had to close it and put it down because I knew something bad was about to happen. Because I'd gotten so invested in your character and in your voice and in this person that I didn't want to see anything bad happen to you. And I knew it was about to. And so I was just like, I'm just going to take a little break. But I'm a softie anyway. But I mean, the way you've written it very much gives it a sense of place and makes it feel of the moment. And something I wanted to ask you about is the language. So I wasn't really sure how to describe this. So I looked up the book and on the book jacket it's written as written in the vernacular. And the way I was going to say is that you've kind of written in your accent and the way you used to speak and the kind of dialect. And it's it's a very clear choice and it's very effective. And I'm curious, again, as to why you decided to write it like that. Because that's how I spoke, you know, and I've heard you talking about this. I feel that sometimes as people coming from oppressed identities, we feel that we need to code switch. And Mm -hmm. Are you code switching now? Because this is a question I was going to say for later. You said that you used to have a stronger accent. In the book, you mention towards the end, like changing the way you speak. And I'm curious as to how you've navigated the world, especially publishing and media, which is so middle class and London centric. And I don't feel like you have a particularly strong accent. And I feel like that must not have been the case 15 years ago. So has that happened naturally or has that been a concerted choice? Oh, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, I did English language and literature at university. And I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of code switching and I absolutely 100% understand that it's problematic when we, society, requires it or expects it of people of colour. So I'm not speaking to that experience, but I think that it can be a very positive thing, right? And I think particularly as women and effective communicators do tend to tailor their language to be more in line with the person that they're speaking to. Mm -hmm. And this can be quite pro-social. It's a marker of emotional intelligence, being able to code switch and adapt the way you speak or conduct yourself to different social scenarios. I definitely don't deny that. But I think there's a difference between that and what, say, a working class person with a strong accent might or might not decide to do, or what a black person might or might not decide to do when in a majority white environment. I definitely agree with you that code switching is an important social skill and not necessarily a bad thing, but that's not quite what I'm asking in relation to you. Yeah, a large part of this book is about class transition as much as anything. And I think that that's been one of the more profound transitions that I've made in my life. And in many ways, I feel that the classing has 
hold me back more in my career and perhaps has more of an impact on my day-to-day interactions and moving through the world than really than the transing at this point yeah absolutely yeah 100 in the media i'm not saying that the transing isn't a big thing because it is obviously but i have this joke sometimes that i'm just i looked around me one day when i was five and i was like oh god i've been born into the proletariat this is this is not <laughs> this is this is not going to be easy for me how you know <laughs> i was very precocious from a very young the age thing is and i can really fucking imagine <laughs> No, but I really was. And honestly, I do feel for my parents and everybody around me because I was just a strange little sapling, shall we say. I was really precocious. And actually spoke to my dad the other day and he was saying, you know, I just used to terrorise everybody because I was really clever as a child. And I used to point out their inconsistencies and question everything. And I just, from a very, very, very young age, had this really strong feeling that if I was middle class that my life would be easier, that for somebody that was different in the way that I was different, it was going to be particularly difficult for me being in the town that I was in. And I looked at the television and I saw the way that middle-class people lived and they had houses full of books and ideas and they were more sort of celebratory of creativity and sensitivity and ideas and things like that. And I was like, that's what I need. I need to go to Oxford. I need to go to Cambridge. I need to get out of here because being someone like me in a town like this is not going to be good. And I still feel that. I have a friend who was at school with me and they're not out to their family, but they've confided in me that they too feel as I feel, but they work in a factory. They drink a lot. They have a very sort of rough working class family. And that's no, I'm not trying to shame working class people because that's the world that I'm from. And their dad is a bit of a pub man. They really fear their family's reaction. And they also don't have agency to just go and set up somewhere different. They don't have power. They don't have options, you know. So your life is going to be difficult in lots of different ways if you're in a town like that. And then to have like another layer of oppression thrown into it. So the way I always describe it is that's a town where you don't have a seat at the table. So you've made your own little table in the corner where you get the scraps from the table. And then I felt that I wasn't even allowed to go and huddle in the corner and pick up the, the scraps of the scraps, which is quite an extreme way of putting it. But I desperately wanted to escape. And so I think quite consciously, I wanted to go and join the people who talked about ideas and, and read books and the middle class people. So I think it was a conscious thing. And I think also there's this whole thing of how much do you change society and how much do you change yourself, right? Because I would like to live in a world genuinely where everybody can walk down the street no matter what they look like and for us all to feel safe. Does that mean that I haven't had surgery? Does it mean that I haven't put a lot of resources into trying to pass, for want of a better term? It's pretty problematic, but I should be able to walk down the street looking like whatever. But also, we live in the real world, and I know that my life is going to be easier for me if I conform to a standard of what society wants a woman to look like. And the same with the voice, you know, if you speak a certain way, that's going to be more beneficial for you. Yeah, it just is. I read this really interesting article a couple of years ago. I returned to it quite a lot, actually. It's by Janet Mock, and she writes about having pretty privilege as a trans woman. And the fact that because she... Can I use the word passes or... Yeah, I don't care about all this. I'm not going to jump down your neck with language stuff. But But because she conforms, I guess, more to what society deems feminine and what an attractive woman should look like, she essentially is like, I get an easier ride of it than other trans women because she looks super feminine and yeah it's like in an ideal world that wouldn't matter but it's something that exists and so there's an element of you as you say trying to change society but also just being a pragmatist and being like yeah do you know what I'm gonna do what I need to do to get by and I think that's definitely something that I've done in certain ways I think now that I'm like you know 30 and like i know myself a lot more than I did in my 20s but there are definitely times in the past where I've put on my super posh accent which gets me places and blah blah blah, because I know how to do that because I'm in a situation where I'm like this is just going to make my life easier or get these people to take me more seriously and I do that way in fact I don't really think I do that at all anymore but 
definitely in my early 20s that was something I was conscious of but it's exhausting and I would always go home from those sorts of situations it would be like I have a lot of very posh friends because I went to private school and I went to Oxford and it'd be maybe it's sort of like a family party and you're talking to their posh relatives and I just find myself doing this voice and being really genteel but I'd always go home just feeling a bit exhausted and shit just staying on topic of class so you've talked about coming from a really staunchly working class background and kind of having these middle class aspirations. And now that you are here, I would say pretty unequivocally existing in a middle class world and, you know, have certain a level of agency that I would describe as middle class. How does that feel? It's not enough. I want to be posh now. So okay. I, I want to go up and up. No, I'm joking. It's difficult because I am happier. I live in a house with lots of books now and I get to talk to people about ideas and books and things like that. And that is what I'd always wanted. But at the same time, I do have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, particularly when it comes to working with people. Because I'm doing a lot of publicity at the moment. And when you do photo shoots, you get sent through the photographer, the hair person, the makeup person. And I'm quite suspicious because let's be honest, there's so many mediocre middle-class people. <laughs> like, And the British media is full of full fucking of mediocre <laughs> middle-class people. And so my big thing is like, are you here because you're really, really talented and you're good at what you do? Or are you coming with this big, I don't really care energy because you've never really had to work for it? And I don't mean that to sound like I'm really resentful and bitter, but... It's just a true question. Well, it just gives me a different perspective, you know, and I just think if I'm looking at two different people for something and somebody clearly has an accent or they've come from a different part of the country or they are perhaps oppressed in some way, that makes me think, hmm, I think you've probably had to work a bit more harder to get where you are and you are going to give me... 100% because you're like mm. me you fought to be here and so that's always interesting and a bit frustrating because I know so many people and Alice Walker talks about this she talks about how she knows so many people from when she was young and growing up that didn't get to be who they were supposed to be right because of systemic oppression and racism and I know so many people who could have done so much with their lives if they'd had some of the advantages that the people that I'm coming into contact with who just aren't talented, I don't really know how else to put it, really. No, I completely agree. It's constantly frustrating, but it's weird. I always say, you know, I have like friends in like high places and low places and like nothing in the middle. Like, I don't really like middle class people. Like, a lot of my friends are quite posh or they would hate to be described in that way but particularly some of the trans women that I know because you know I'm not friends with people because they're trans but it occurred to me a couple of years ago that a lot of my friends who are trans are, are quite posh and it's because they certainly haven't had lives of uncomplicated privilege but they maybe haven't been abused on the bus because they were in a car they didn't get messed about by the NHS because they went privately to get the health care. They didn't have substandard surgery because they flew off to Thailand and went to see the leading surgeons. So money makes a lot of problems disappear. And I'm a highly sensitive person as well as being trans. That's the other thing that I've learned about myself in recent years. And I think that if you're highly sensitive and if you are trans in a transphobic society, then your life's just going to be a lot easier if you can sort of cushion yourself with privilege and find a way to do that. And I've always instinctively known that. For me, privilege is almost like an act of self-care because I really don't want to depress anybody who is living on a council estate. But for me personally, I just couldn't do it. I personally couldn't work behind a bar. And I've done that. You know, I've done all sorts of things for money over the years. You know, if you've read the book, you know, so it's no judgment. I love my grandmother to bits and she worked in a shoe shop and she worked behind a bar. It's not judging anybody. But for me, if I can't look a certain way or afford to get my hair done or have a certain level of comfort in my life, I just know that I'm very unhappy. Does that make me sound awful? No, it makes you sound really fucking honest. And I could not agree more with you on all of that. And I really appreciate honesty about that because I think there can be a little bit of a tendency, particularly online spaces, particularly on Twitter, to kind of always be like a really staunch class warrior and therefore not admit the ways in which having money makes your life easier. And the fact that 
I personally think it's okay to seek that out. Like, There's actually a bit in my book coming out where I quote this theorist, Jessa Crispin, who's written this book about feminism, why I'm not a feminist, and one of the criticisms she levels against that whole corporate feminism, girl boss feminism, is, you know, she has this quote, she was like, money is a really easy way of checking out of many pernicious types of oppression. And she puts that forward as like a criticism of this kind of corporate neoliberal feminism. And I was like, to be honest, that sounds fucking great. Yeah. I have seen what money can do for you. Like I went to private school, came from like humble background, but I got a scholarship to a private school and I know how that changed my life. And yeah, yeah, okay, my parents couldn't pay for it, but I'm like, had they been able to pay for it, all the other people who did pay for it, I'm like, the value of that education, which probably ran to the hundreds of thousands of pounds, I know what that did to change my life. And I know how different my life path became. So, you know, I went to a state primary school and there was like a little cohort of us who were like all high achieving or whatever. Especially my best friend then, we were like always competing over grades, always really neck and neck. And then I got a scholarship to this fancy private school and they did not. And I've seen how differently our lives have turned out. I'm not saying this like shit on anyone, but I'm like, yeah. they were all as smart as I was. Yeah. But I then got this huge advantage that is essentially a function of wealth. Yes. And my yeah. life has turned out massively different. And it's yeah. not just, oh, I was smart or talented. It's because I had this really expensive education. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I'm just really, really glad that you've been so direct and honest about that because I think it's not the popular narrative when yeah. it comes to talking about class, but it's the true one. I think it's something that you know even more if you've come from a working yes. class or a humble background. And sometimes the people who are most critical about this sort of thing are like middle class and upper middle class yes. people who are like, yes. oh yeah, it's not just yes. about money. I'm like, well, you try not having money then because I've yeah. been there and I yeah. know how different life is. Yeah, exactly, 100%. And I often feel like I'm being patronised and scolded by middle-class people um, who are really big on like socialism, that I'm not socialist enough. And I got into a bit of trouble recently because Abigail Thorne, the fabulous YouTuber who does philosophical video essays, she joked about how she had a knockoff YSL handbag when she met me and I had the real thing. Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah, and all these people in the replies were just like, oh yeah, you know, just basically attacking me and saying that I was privileged and how terrible. and, And it's just like... Guys, I'm at an age now where people that I went to school with are getting houses, businesses, having holidays abroad and stuff. It's like, I don't have a car. I don't have a house. Yes, my life looks really great from the outside. And yes, I do have some privileges and opportunities. But like, it's a bag not a Lamborghini, you know, it's like, that's probably the most expensive thing I own, that bag. And I have literally begged, stilled and borrowed to get here. So it's just like, I want everybody to have a YSL handbag, first of all, you know, like, I want society to be more equal. I don't want people to struggle in the way that my family and my grandmother and my father struggled. And I think that it's morally wrong to be a billionaire. I do. But it's just like, let me have some nice things, please. Let me have something because I can't solve all of the world's problems. And I'm trying to make society more equal. But also, I would just like to have a level of comfort and pleasantness in my life. And sorry, I'm ranting now, but I I have to tell you. I completely agree. I have to tell you about my friend because when I first moved to London, I had a friend who was trans and she was from a really working class background as well. And she'd worked really hard and, you know, was a bit of a schemer and a hustler. And, you know, (laughs) she'd been able to afford really good facial feminization surgery and her life was easier as a result. And she lived in Canary Wharf as well. And she was really keen about being there because she made the point to me, people here tend to be wealthier they tend to be more educated and they tend to be a bit more well behaved I mean okay they're fucking over the rest of society but if you pass them in the street if they notice that you're trans they're probably less likely to comment on it they might be trying to do you over in in different ways and stuff you know and there's so many different forms of discrimination but in terms of people being rude to you in the street I know that if you don't pass and you look trans, that's more likely to happen if you're in Asda than if you're in Waitrose. Mm. 
And it's just a fact, you know, and I wish it wasn't so, but I can't change the whole of society. It's like with the wanting to look a certain way. I often feel like, you know, I'm really vain or I'm too obsessed with my appearance. And it's like, I didn't make the fucking rules. I didn't say that, oh, people are going to be really horrible to you if you don't look like a quote unquote real girl. I didn't, I didn't make that rule. I'm not enforcing that. People were nicer to me when I started looking quote unquote better. Well, I didn't create that system, you know, so I'm not going to apologise for wanting to just make my life slightly less difficult. I was curious when you're reading it, because as I said, I really enjoyed reading it. And there's so much about it with like all the clubbing and the party memories and like the songs that you reference. Like I actually, have you got a playlist of this book, by the way? You're going to make There is totally a playlist. Did it take you back? It really took me back. It really, really took me back. It took me back to like the first time I went to a club. I think I was like 14. I went to, there was this place that's obviously now shut down. Yeah, because I grew up in London. So it's like. Yeah, yeah. so you were in the clubs at 14, right. Okay. Yeah. And there was this place called Herbal near Liverpool Street, which obviously has shut down since. It was the kind of one place that we could like reliably get. I think I once went in there literally with my school bag. Like, I don't know what they were thinking, but they would let us in. And it's so funny as well, because that was kind of like my teenage years. And then by the time I went to uni and came back out, all of those clubs were shut down and the clubbing scene was very different. So like what I thought my adult life would be like, like I wasn't really like big on the clubs when I graduated after I left uni because it was so different. I was so like head down trying to get a job, trying to make it. So like that fun period of my life is all before uni, but I was kind of like reminiscing and like feeling, oh my God, this is such a trip down memory lane. And then I was thinking, do you look back at that time fondly? Because there were obviously so many highs, but at the same time as having, you know, a really great time, loads of parties and making cool friends, you were also having a pretty shitty time in other aspects. As you said, there were a lot of drugs involved, which sometimes sounded like they were good, other times not so good. There was a stint in... Is it the Youth Offenders Institute? Yeah. It's such contrast. And I was curious as to how you look back at that time now as an adult. Well, to be honest with you, I think I've spent most of my life really traumatised by it. I mean, it's so difficult to talk about this. And I don't want to be a victim because I think this is something that trans people end up being. is just like professional victims. And I'm not a victim And I'm really not. And I'm not a strong victim either because I hate that I'm the strong victim and I've been through all of this and that. I'm having a good life in 2021. But the fact is, I was so desperately, desperately unhappy. And it's like, I couldn't accept it, Otega. I just could not accept that that was my story. And I would do anything to change it. And I so wish that it could have been different. And so I've had to write this book about it and spin it into gold you know, and make make it into something that if this book is a success and it does allow me to make some money so that I can buy the house and the car Mm. and have a bit of stability and have a life that will provide me with a level of comfort and dignity and it's not pitiable. So I know so many trans people whose lives are pitiable and I, I don't say that to upset people because I know loads of people are having great times as well. But when I first came out as trans, I think the general consensus was, oh, you know, your life's going to be awful. I thought that. People around me thought that. It wasn't an unreasonable thing to think. This book could actually propel me into a life that is aspirational, that's enviable, that's enjoyable and meaningful and gives me some options of how I want to live life on my own terms. And so if it does, then all of that stuff, I I think I may be able to look back on it and say, do you know what? It happened and I've taken some meaning out of it. And ultimately it's come right in the end. I'm not sure I'm quite there right now. And it's incredibly painful thinking about this stuff. But that's why I wanted to include the joy as well, because I refused to let it be my story. And I said, well, do you know what? I'm going to have a lot of fun. And we did. And I'm sorry, we had more fun than anybody's ever had, ever. (laughs) Lady Di, her real name is Steffi. I spoke with her last night and she still amazes me. Like she was a couple of years older than me. She's still a couple of years older than me. That doesn't change. (laughs) I just remember thinking, I've never met anybody like you and you're just so cool. And I talk about it in the acknowledgements because I was like, I really didn't want to make her like the sort of like the trope of the magical black person, right? Because I'm really aware of that and it really annoys me when I see it in movies and stuff. She's just an extraordinary person, full stop. I just haven't met anybody like her full stop. She's just cool and she's just 
hilarious and her sense of humor is just so obscure and she still surprises me today and it's a testament to the fun that we had and and a celebration of the fact that you know we found a way to be young you know, despite the fact that the odds were stacked against us. And she was dealing with all these other things that I wasn't dealing with because she was dealing with the racism as well and all of those intersections. I really wanted to document that. And I've asked her so many different times and I've asked my mum as well, you know, I did say to her in earnest about six months ago, I said, mum, if you don't want me to publish this, tell me now. Oh, wow. And honestly, maybe it's more than she deserved, but it's like... There was a lot of love and it maybe has presented a slightly negative picture of her in this story because it's written from my perspective at that time in a very specific time frame. And I do feel bad because, you know, she has been a really good mum in, in lots of different ways and I love her to bits. And I said to Steffi, Lady Di, are you sure that you are happy with me publishing this? I can't do it if you're not happy with it. Because it's about you as much as it's about me in many ways. You know, she's a really important part of the book. And, you know, she said to me, Paris, if you didn't write this book, I'd have had to have written it. It's so nice to know that I'm doing it with the support of a group of people because I didn't grow up feeling supported. And this is a really difficult book for my mum. It's a difficult book for my father. They've given me their blessing because they understand this is what I need to do. Mm. This is what I need to do to move forward and to be happy. And to have Steffi's blessing and for her to feel that this is an authentic portrayal of what our lives were at that time and that it's important and that it needs saying. I just can't imagine doing it otherwise. It's really humbling and I'm incredibly grateful. And I hope that she'll come on podcasts and do some publicity with me because I think we really need to hear from her as well. And and the same with my mum. And I think, you know, it'd be great to hear my mum's perspective on some of this stuff in here as well, you know, and and let's have a conversation. Paris, (laughs) you've made me quite emotional. Oh, sorry. I know, it's, it's fine. It's intense. It's heavy stuff. It's an intense book and I think there's... A little bit of me that was only able to get through or to enjoy it in the way that I did by momentarily suspending the idea and the fact that this is a memoir. And so I kind of treated it in my head as like a bit of a novel. But now hearing you talk about it and remembering that that stuff happened to you and that you went through that stuff and hearing how much it means to you. I've just never wanted a book to succeed more, guys. So like everyone listening to this, please go out and buy it and read it. And not just because we want to make Paris rich, but also because it's just a fucking incredibly written book. Like I just can't impress on you enough. Like I read a lot and this has really stood out to me as being completely original, completely fresh. And you are one of a kind. So I hope everyone realizes that. Thank you so much. And it's so touching to hear all of the amazing reviews it's getting. And that's not a humble brag. It's like, genuinely, this is the most important thing I've got going on in my life. I've put all of my eggs in this basket and you spent seven, eight years writing a book to finally share it with people. And and hear you saying that is so overwhelming. And also the thing is, as Olatega, that's why I wrote it like that, because it was difficult for me to revisit it. And so it's almost been like a therapeutic device. They say, you know, talk to the empty chair and pretend it's your mother. This is my story. This stuff did happen by presenting it as a sort of, I guess, stylized version of events. It's allowed to give me that little bit of distance and almost think of that period of my life almost as though it were a third person. I had some photos that my mum fished out that she had in a box under her bed when I went home for Christmas a couple of years ago. And I said, please, can I take these back with me? And it was a holiday that we'd been on when I was 14. I might get emotional talking about this. And they sat in a drawer for ages. And then about three months ago, I took them out and I put them in a big frame and made like a collage. And I looked at Byron and it's a kid, right? Mm. And it does make me cry because one of them, I'm just wearing underwear. It's a holiday picture, you know, it was taken either by my mother or my auntie, you know, so it's a loving family gaze, not the sexual gaze. Mm. But you see this body, this body that men paid for and Mm. took advantage of and I really want to go back and give that kid a hug and say you poor baby please look after yourself you're all right as you are you're perfect as you are and I want you to be safe and I want you to be all right and it really breaks my heart thinking that there are kids like that now in this country and all we're hearing about is that they are a problem 
I thought that I was a problem at that age and I was a child. And I think that doing this has helped me not feel happy about it, but just accept that is how it was. And I can sort of face it now and say, that is how it was. And I've written it down in black and white and it happened and I've said it and I won't be gaslit. It happened and it was what it was. And now I need to find a way forward. And we need to find a way forward as a society as well, because we're letting kids like this slip through the cracks. And I can't just move on and enjoy this life of privilege and forget about that kid that I was and other kids like that. I know that you said that you didn't write this book intending it to be a polemic. And it's not, it's it's a memoir, but I know the effect it's had on me having read it. And I really do think that it will have a huge effect on a lot of people who might be adults, who might be kids like you were. And so I know that you came to this book as a memoirist and a writer, but I do think it's going to have a really important political effect and a really important social effect. So I hope that makes you feel good. It's hard being a child, even if you've got every economic privilege in the world. It's hard being a kid and a teenager. I know I had my struggles. And to add to it this question of identity and the world seeing you so massively differently from not just from the way you see yourself but from the person you are yeah I mean that's the makings of lifelong trauma and I think anyone who manages to get over that or to build a life for themselves in spite of that is just an absolute icon which is what you are so thank you so much Paris and that's it for this episode I hope you enjoyed listening to Paris as much as I enjoyed interviewing her As you probably know by now, I'll be back in July with a special money-themed series of the podcast to coincide with the publication of my forthcoming book, We Need to Talk About Money, which you can pre-order now wherever books are sold. I've included links to a few booksellers as well as to my live event with Fane on July the 7th in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at OtegaUagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help to give the show a boost. See you soon. Yeah. Yeah.